0: Uh, Jaylene mentioned the uh, the Asbury Revival. I don't know, some of you maybe have heard about this, maybe some of you haven't. But uh, last Wednesday, so there's, um, there's a small Christian university in Kentucky called Asbury College. And so they got a chapel service every week. And last Wednesday, so about a week and a half ago, uh, according to people who were there, it was an unremarkable chapel service. And then afterwards, they invited people if they wanted to stick around and keep worshiping. And I think even there was an invitation to, to kind of experience the love of God in a fresh way. And about 20 students stuck around and, and, and they hung out and they were worshiping. And then more and more kind of trickled back into the chapel. And uh, word started spreading that this, this chapel service hadn't actually ended yet. And, and so over the afternoon and the evening, more and more people came back. And by the evening, there were like, there were a few hundred people who were, were back in the chapel just worshiping and praising. And it hasn't stopped. Ten days later, through the night, 24-7, people are just worshiping and praising the Lord. People are coming from all over the United States and beyond. There are tens of thousands of people storming this little college town thousands of people packing this auditorium and it's just it's just an acoustic guitars and a cajon and and uh, there's not there's no big names there's no big names it's just it's just student-led and it's it's leaders in the university Jaylene was telling me that some big name speakers and worship leaders have contacted them and said hey we'll come and we'll lead We'll we'll do it for free even and they said we don't want you because we're doing something here God's doing something here and, uh, and, and now it's spread to other universities too. So, so people from other universities have come and they've, they've stayed for a while. They've experienced it and then they've gone back and they've started other gatherings. And so it's spreading in all of these universities in the United States. I read a report yesterday that last week at various gatherings, 2,000 college students repented and turned to Christ as their savior. This is... <laughs> and it, it struck me yesterday that this, this is Gen Z. This is the Gen Z revival. This is this generation that that has felt so often lost and, and, and hopeless, and, and it 's gone through the pandemic and there's this, this isolation and depression and anxiety and, and just spiritual like dryness and then there's, and then this is happening. and I just I love how God does this again and again at times where it seems. Like, things are dead and hopeless, and just as he only can, he, he revives it, and, and like Jaylene said, it's, there's no flash. There's, there's, it wasn't planned, right? It, just, it, was, it was the Holy Spirit just working, and it's just so simple. It's just worship and prayer and reading scriptures and inviting repentance from sin, and it's just, I'm blown away by it. Um, I want to go. I want to go to Kentucky, guys. But the thing is, we, could, we don't need to go to Kentucky, right? This is, this is the whole thing. Like We, we, we hear it. We're, we're stoked by it. Uh, we, we are inspired by it. And, and so we seek the same here among us. And so tonight, again, at 7 o'clock, we're, we're going to be worshiping. And I want to invite you to, to come and to join us. I can't guarantee it's going to turn into a 10-day nonstop thing. But, but we're going to worship and praise together. And, and that's the whole thing when we read the book of Acts, right? When we're going through the book of Acts, and I know that I say this again and again, but we don't read the book of Acts as like nice stories that happened back there. Isn't that nice how those things happened 2,000 years ago? We read them as the living word of God that shapes and forms our desire and our vision and our thirst for today. It's like Habakkuk. The prophet said, Lord, I have heard of your fame I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. It's actually the only time in the Old Testament where you get the Hebrew word that's usually translated as revive. Revive them in our day. The things we've heard you do in the past, do them again today. That's our prayer. And that's what we're all about as, as we go into the book of Acts. So Lord, we invite you Holy Spirit, to speak to us today, we thank you that your word is a living word. These aren't just stories, this isn't just history, this isn't just a lesson so that we have some information. Lord, it's living, it's active, it penetrates our hearts, it shapes us and it forms us and we pray, Holy Spirit, do that today. Do it among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Act 17, verse 10, as soon as it was night... The believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too. This is, the, this is revival reversed, right? Some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So when we last left Paul and Silas last last week, they were in Thessalonica. As often happened, there was a a very much of a mixed response. You had there were some people who believed what Paul said about Jesus, and they, they received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized, filled with the love of God. Others were filled with something very different. They were filled with anger and jealousy and rage, and so a mob forms. And Paul, as he often has to do, has to get out of the city before they kill him. And he he goes to the the town of Berea. As we do at every stop, let's talk a little bit about this this place. Berea was less of a city, more more of a town. You can see on the map there, about 70 kilometers west of of Thessalonica. It was very much out of the way. One Greek writer actually called it an out-of-the-way town. Not a very dignified way of speaking of a town. It was off the main road. And so you might wonder why Paul and uh, and Silas and Timothy headed there. Because usually they went to big cities, right? They went to places like Philippi and Thessalonica. And, and perhaps it's because they wanted to stay within striking distance of Thessalonica in case the situation there changed. But probably it's because Paul had it in his mind that he was going to Athens. That was kind of the destination. That was the goal. And if you were going from Thessalonica to Athens by land, apparently Berea was, you, you, you passed through there. So they end up there. And maybe because Berea didn't have that same kind of clout, that same kind of uh, like pride and self-importance, that the town was, the place was more receptive, More humble more ready to receive what Paul and, uh, and Silas had for them. And again, I just think about, I think about the revival at Asbury, and I think about how God's not using big names, people with lots of status and renown. He's using college students. He's using student leaders. And uh, this is often the way of God, just to make it clear. This isn't from us. This is from him. Uh, the Jews in Berea are uh, said to be noble some, uh, some Greek writers said that Bereans in general were noble people. Luke says this, these, these Jews were, were of noble mind. So Paul goes to the synagogue, announces, as he often does, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And, uh, and the Jews in Berea, they, 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 they examine the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result. Not just some of them believe like in Thessalonica, but many of them believe. The response is is even greater. And you would think right at this moment, right? You're like, okay, finally, Paul and Silas have found a place where they're not getting chased by mobs. They're not getting arrested by authorities. Finally, they can like settle down a little bit, right? Enjoy ministry without all of this hassle and stress. And then here come the Thessalonians. I mean, they walk 70 kilometers on foot. It's not a 45-minute drive down the highway. They walk 70 kilometers just to get other people angry about the thing that they're angry about. That's incredible. Although I guess some Philadelphia Eagles fans last week might have been happy to walk 70 kilometers to burn stuff and wreck stuff. So I guess there was a football game last week, in case you didn't know. Um, so I guess we can understand, right, when you feel really, really upset about something, just like when you feel really excited about something, you want to share it with other people. So that's what the Thessalonians do. And as a result, Paul once again has to run, has to flee from the, the city. Last couple of verses tell us that he makes some arrangements for Silas and Timothy, who are not the target of the rage, to stay a little bit longer and then to rejoin him in Athens. It's a pretty short, it's a pretty short text, pretty short stop in some ways, But I wanted to, um, originally I had this looped in with the Thessalonica text, but then I said I want to really take this on its own because of a really key verse, I think, in, in verse 11, which is that they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's huge. And I think it's worthwhile spending the rest of our morning just on that. They received the message with great eagerness because they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. A couple clarifications. First, the scriptures. What scriptures are we talking about here? Uh, And the short story, the the, the short of it is that they were talking about what we call the Old Testament. We've got this collection of 39 books written over a period of time. Uh, The Jews had that collection. They ordered it and grouped it a little bit differently. But still, those, those were their scriptures They believed that these scriptures were from God, that they were were inspired by God, and they really formed the center of life for Jewish people. You had rabbis who debated and argued endlessly about minute details of of the scriptures and how to interpret them and apply them. doesn't make for scintillating reading, but it was really important for them. A lot of Jews memorized wide swaths of of scripture. They, They hid it in their hearts. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A lot of Jews took that and and, and they they applied that. They memorized scripture. The story that the scriptures told formed their identity, their sense of purpose in the world, the the way they understood the world. Jesus himself speaks to how important the scriptures were to the Jews. He says, "In John, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, you have eternal life. They studied them diligently. In fact, this was what set the Jews, one of the things, many things, that set them apart in the first century world was their devotion to sacred texts, to writing and reading and copying and distributing. Other groups in the Roman Empire, they didn't do that. In the ancient world, they didn't really do that. Not like, not like the Jews and then later the Christians did. So scriptures, really, really big, like like they were markedly devoted to the scriptures. Other point of clarification, what Paul said, what did Paul say? Because we don't have a record of a a whole sermon here. Um, Probably he said the same things he said everywhere. He would have talked about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures how Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that as Messiah, he had to die, he had to rise again, that anyone who puts their faith in the Messiah uh, receives forgiveness, receives life, receives the promised Holy Spirit. That would have been what what he talked about. And so the Jews took what Paul said, and they examined the Scriptures to see if what he said was true. Now, the word examined is often, in the Greek, uh, a legal word. To do with cross-examining something or, or a witness, but it's not like to be clear from the context. It's not that the Jews were judging the scriptures. It's not that they were skeptical about the Scriptures. They weren't standing over the Scriptures and judging them. Instead, they were coming under the Scriptures, taking what Paul said and seeing if it fits, seeing if it lined up. They came under the Scriptures. you see what, you see what I mean, how important that is? Not above the Scriptures and judging, but under and, and measuring what they were hearing on, based, based on the Scriptures. Now the question is, why, why would they do that? Why couldn't they? Some of, some of us might wonder, why couldn't they just take Paul's teaching and judge it on its own merit? Why would they go to an old collection of texts and base their discernment on that? Might help to, and, and why would Christians do the same thing? Hypothetically, that's what Christians are supposed to be doing. So why, why is that? Maybe it helps to just kind of track this conviction through a little bit. Jews, and Christians as well, of course, believe that God exists, that he's real. I know that's shocking. That's why you come to the bridge for groundbreaking tidbits like that on a Sunday morning. But that's the first thing, of course. Basic fundamental assumption. God exists. And then second thing is that God actually wants us to know him. So he doesn't remain far off, out of reach, We're not flailing around trying to figure things out. He wants us to know him. The trouble is that as human beings, we're limited and we're sinful. And so we can't get that knowledge on our own. We can't work our way up to the knowledge of God. And so we rely on him revealing himself to us. See, Christianity is a revelational faith. It it depends on the fact, on the faith, that God has revealed himself to us, that he has shown us who he is. That's fundamental to the whole thing. If you start there, then you can build from that. God exists. He wants us to know him. He's made himself known to us. We believe that God has made himself known to everyone everywhere through means of what we call general revelation. So general revelation meaning this is, this is available to everyone. It's primarily in creation itself. So Paul says in Romans 1, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul says you know some things about God's character from creation. There are some things that you, that you can tell about who God is. Others suggest that, um, that, that kind of widespread moral consciousness, conscientiousness, is uh, is, that's evidence of God's general revelation, that that there's just kind of this sense among humans that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, that maybe that's God's general revelation. Maybe even a a general religious impulse, that no matter what culture you go to, what time of history, you usually find people worshipping, seeking out the divine. Maybe that's part of God's general revelation. But as you can tell, general revelation doesn't get you very far. It leaves a lot of questions. It's pretty unsatisfactory on its own. And the good news for Jews and then for Christians later is that God has also revealed himself through what we call special or particular revelation. That there are ways God has revealed himself much more clearly and directly. And here we're talking first and foremost about the scriptures. This is God's special and particular revelation to us. Most famously, Paul says uh, to Timothy, he talks about the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is God-breathed breathed. It shows us who he is. It shows us how we are to live. The scriptures are the reliable witness as to God's character and his will for us. Now, Christians believe that there is an even more special uh, revelation. Perhaps we could say an ultimate revelation, which is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. So Hebrews, Hebrews puts it best. Uh, It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Or as Paul says it a lot more concisely in Colossians 2, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is our conviction, that Jesus is God among us. That he is God in the flesh, the clearest and fullest revelation of God that we could ever, that, that, that's, that's possible, that we could ever ask for. Jesus is the, the ultimate form of God's self-revelation to us. But of course, the question is, 2,000 years later, how do you know? How do you know who Jesus is? How do you know what he's done? This is what I never understand. We'll talk about this later. But I never understand about people who want to cut off the scriptures and say, I'm just a Jesus guy. I'm not a Bible person. How do you know? How do you know who Jesus is and what he's done? Unless the scriptures are, in fact, true and trustworthy. See, we still go back to this, that the scriptures are God's self-revelation to us, climaxing in the revelation of his son, Jesus. And this is why we say that we use this word about the Bible, that the Bible is God's authoritative word. It has authority in our lives. Authority means that you have the right to rule, right? If, if something or someone has authority, then you let them call the shots. You, you, don't, you don't tell them what to do. You don't give guidance to authority. You listen to their guidance. You submit to it. You follow its direction. And so we believe that the Bible carries God's authority in our lives and calls the shots in terms of what we believe and how we live that this is kind of a solid foundation on which to base our lives. Our, um, so uh, I was telling someone earlier, we, we kind of keep it hidden, but we are Baptists. We are a Baptist church. We try to trick people by being more charismatic than they think Baptists are. But um, our, <laughs> our Baptist General Conference says, this is the first article of, of the Statement of Faith. We believe that the Bible is the revealed word of God, fully and verbally inspired written under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We believe it's without error in the original manuscripts and is true and trustworthy in all that it asserts. It has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. It has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The Bible gets to call the shots on how we live and how we believe because it is God's word to us. Now there's a lot of questions that this leaves unanswered, right? Like even in that statement that we that we looked at, what does it mean to assert something as true? When is the Bible asserting something and when is it using language that is kind of culturally accommodated? When what about what about times when faith and conduct issues are unclear when the Bible doesn't address it directly, what do you do then? I mean, there's a reason why people will get whole degrees just on biblical exegesis or biblical interpretation. I got these big, thick books in my library. You can borrow them if you want. Nobody's ever asked for them, but you can borrow it if you want. I've got shelves and shelves of commentaries that are just just works of explaining this is what this passage means. This is how you interpret it, how you apply it. I mean, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about here. We could talk for weeks. If we want to do like a 24-7 thing for the next two weeks, we could do a class on biblical interpretation. Because there's a lot of things to talk about. How you've got to interpret the scriptures based on its context, based on its literary form, based on the intention of the author. How you need to interpret scripture by scripture. That you interpret earlier passages in light of later ones and so on. There's a lot of complexity here, a lot to talk about, but the basic point remains the same, that the Bible is God's authoritative self-revelation for us, calling the shots on faith and conduct. And that's what the Jews in Acts 17 in Berea believed. And so when Paul came with this teaching about Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures, what do they do with it? They didn't have an emotional response like those in Thessalonica. We don't like this. It doesn't feel good. Let's burn stuff. Like they didn't do that. Right? They they took it to their authority, to the scriptures, and they discerned, does this fit? Is this true? Is this in line with with our authority? I I want to pause here. I want to reflect a little bit on kind of the application in our day to day because there has been a movement in recent times. And by recent times, I don't mean in the last like five minutes. It's more like last couple hundred years, there has been this movement among Western Christians away from the Bible as God's authoritative word. Um, there's a church, for example, in our community here. Their first article of faith on their website is that we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. We understand the Bible as a human product, written in the context of two ancient communities. It's a record of how those people understood and experienced God and their life of faith. So the Bible is just, it's just a human record that talks about some people way back then and their experience and faith, but we don't need to take it literally, right? So that's kind of what liberal progressive Christianity has done for like 200 years. Is anything that doesn't sit well with modern sensibilities, you just kind of jettison that. You you, you can discard that. Uh, and, And so, what's happened now is that humans have become authoritative over God's word, right? Human intellect and reason now stands above Scripture and decides what it approves of, what makes sense, and what doesn't make sense. And that's not just actually in liberal dying denominations, you see that in evangelical churches too there are a lot of evangelical churches that downplay the role of the scriptures and instead, week by week, they're like, no, no, if we preach the scriptures, nobody will want to come and we need to fill the seats. So they preach topical sermons that treat the scriptures very, very briefly and lightly, mostly as a series of bumper sticker slogans, self-help slogans, right? So just kind of barely touching on the scriptures because we've got to p- keep people entertained. We've got to keep people in the seats, you know, Andy Stanley, he's um, the pastor of North Point Community Church in Georgia. And uh, that church is one of the biggest churches in the world. 40,000 people in weekly attendance at a whole bunch of different campuses and sites. Um, Andy Stanley has been saying some things recently. He's a very public figure, very, very influential. Uh, I'm not sure about it. He, he wrote a book a few years ago, and he said in that book that the problem with the modern Western church And there are some problems. I'm not sure this is the one, but he says the problem is our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. Old Covenant narratives. We're talking about the Old Testament, right? This is our problem, apparently, is that we are, we're too focused on that. I don't know very many Christians who are too focused on the Old Testament, but apparently it's a big problem in Georgia. He he asks, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? Because he says, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right there at the top of the list. But hey, there's good news. The good news is that even if none of those things, those Old Testament things, actually happened, it does nothing to undermine the credibility of our New Covenant faith. Good news—we can just cut off two-thirds of our Bible, and our faith will not be affected by it. Come on! I feel like it's—it's bizarre to me that a follower of Jesus would say these things. Because a follower, because Jesus cited Old Testament scripture all the time; those were his scriptures. He taught them, he explained them to his disciples. When Paul goes around to these different towns, what is he doing? He goes to the synagogue, he opens the scriptures, he says, look, look how it all points to Jesus and you're gonna cut that off? And Jesus himself said, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, meaning the scriptures, until everything is accomplished. So it should cause, that should cause you pause if you're unhitching your faith from two thirds of our scriptures. It doesn't work. Come on. So you have that. Contrast that kind of approach and mindset with how the Bible is seen and treated and understood by Christians in countries where they're persecuted. Uh, I know I've, um, I've talked fairly often about this autobiography by Brother Yoon. Which has had a big impact on me. uh, He—he's a a leader, or was—he's—he's now in the United States, but he was a leader in the underground church in China. Underground, not that they dug holes in the ground and built built church buildings. In which case, we would be an underground church. Actually, we're doing it, guys. We're doing it. The bridge is underground. This is great. But not in terms of that, but in terms of, you know, being hidden and covert and so on. So he was, he was a leader. Uh, he tells the story of his, of his conversion to faith. He was, uh, so he was a teenager in a small rural village in the province of Henan in, in China. And uh, his, his father was deathly ill with cancer. His mother, I guess, had made a profession of faith in Jesus years and years before when some missionaries had come through, but it was mostly forgotten. It was... It was way in the past. But when his father was deathly ill, his, his mother began praying and crying out to Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, the, the father is miraculously healed, restored to health. And now the whole family is, uh, is saying, we, we love Jesus. We want to know Jesus. But uh, Brother Yun, I guess he was just Yun at that point. Yun, he, he says to his mom, hey, can I read any of this, of the teachings of this Jesus? Are there any of his words left? She says, "No, no, there aren't. They're all gone, because this is the 1970s. Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. If you were caught with a Bible, uh, Yun said you would you would get beaten in the middle of the town square, and the Bible would be burnt. So there weren't there weren't there weren't Bibles around. But his mother says uh, there there's a there's a pastor there was a, there was a pastor in in a nearby village, and so maybe he knows something about." These, these words. And he goes, they, they go to this, this man, they ask him, do you have one of these, like a Bible? And he says, no, I don't. If you want one, you need to ask God for one. It has to come from him. And so Yun goes home. He's a teenager, right? He prays for one month, just praying desperately for a Bible. Still nothing happens. So he goes back and visits that man again. He says, please, if you have a Bible, I just, I just want to see it or even touch it. Like he's so desperate, so thirsty to just even lay eyes on a Bible. And he says, this man says to you, and he says, well, if you, if you want a Bible, you need to fast. You need to try fasting and you need, to, you need to weep as well. This is what he actually tells you. And he says, the more, the more you weep, the sooner you'll get a Bible. <laughs> So I'm like, we should try that at the bridge. You know, we give out Bibles way too easily. You know, as, as soon as somebody asks for one, we give them one. I want to see you want it, guys. I want to, you know, the more tears, the quicker you'll get one. So he goes home. And for the next 100 days, he eats one small bowl of rice every day. That's it. And he, and he weeps and he cries and he, and he prays for a Bible for 100 days. Nothing's happening. After 100 days, he has a vision one night. And in this vision, he's walking along and he comes across two guys who have a, a, a bread cart. And one of them offers him a loaf of bread and he takes a bite out of the bread and the bread turns into a Bible. And he wakes up. He's pretty disoriented because it's 4 a.m. He's had one small bowl of rice every day for 100 days a little bit delirious. He he thinks that this this vision was real. He thinks that he really has a Bible. So he's searching everywhere in the house, looking for a Bible, desperate for it. His parents are like losing their minds. They're like, God, give him a Bible already. Like our kid is going crazy. Suddenly 4 a.m. there's a knock on the door and he opens the door and it's the same two guys from the vision who he's never seen before. And one of them hands him a paper bag and inside is a Bible. And he finds out later that these two men had been sent by an evangelist from a distant village. And apparently 100 days before, this evangelist had received a vision at night and he had seen the village, he had seen the house, he had seen teenager Yoon. And he was told by God, you've gotta give your, I think, I, think he had, I think he had buried his Bible even, he had hidden it. And God tells him, you've, you've gotta give your Bible to this, this boy in this village. And he kind of resisted this for like three months and eventually, finally went through with it, dug it up, gave it to these two men. They bring it to, uh, to Yun. So Yun was, was just obviously overjoyed. And he promised God he would, he would devour his word like a hungry child. And from then on, he would, uh, he would keep it in the folds of his clothes when he was working. And, and he would read it every opportunity he got. He would sleep with it on his chest Just every opportunity he got memorizing it, reading it. And I think he even had to learn how to read. I don't even think he was literate at first. So, I mean, just just this thirst. And he he tells stories in his autobiography. And I've read these stories elsewhere, too, of imprisoned believers who smuggle in. You know, in, in Western prisons, I guess, you smuggle in cigarettes. Christians in prison, they smuggle in little bits of paper with Scripture passages on them. Right, and they read them, and they memorize them, and they because they know if the guards catch them, they'll get beat. But if they've got the word in their minds, in their hearts, then nothing, nothing can you know, like then they've got it. Right, they can't be taken away from them. So this like thirst to just memorize the scriptures, just a little bit of a different approach than a lot of Westerners who've got like six copies of a Bible in their home and never open one up, never read it. And the question is, when you look at those two very different approaches, mindsets, postures towards the Word of God, where do you think the spiritual fruit is? It's not a hard question, is it? And the truth is, liberal churches that discard the Scriptures or at least put the Scriptures on the same level as any other human document are dying churches. Despite having removed what apparently was this big barrier to people, being entirely culturally relevant, those churches are actually completely lacking in power, conviction, passion, there's really no growth, no momentum, nothing like that. Evangelical churches that treat the scriptures like a series of self-help bumper sticker slogans are churches that are often packed with consumers. We're just looking for entertainment and the moment any kind of difficulty or discomfort arises, they're bolting, they're gone. And you got other churches that believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and they, they even preach from the Bible, but they treat it more like an ancient rule book, like, like some cold thing to be dissected and analyzed. And those, those churches are cold and lifeless. But what about churches? What, what about a theology that, that sees God's word as, as a living word, Meant to speak to us and form us and transform us. What about churches that devour the word? That that are constantly going to the word and examining them to judge the truth of what else is going on in the world based on them. What about churches that see in the scriptures God's authoritative witness to the good news of Jesus? Well, you look at a church like, like in China. The story of the church in China over the last 40 or 50 years is one of the greatest stories in church history. Because in the 1970s, Christianity looked like it was done in China. Mao Zedong's wife had earlier boasted that, that the church in China was dead and buried. That's where it was at in the 1970s. Today, estimates put it around 100 million Christians. In China. It will not be long before China has more Christians than any other country in the world. And this is in far than favorable circumstances. This is where in in the context of persecution and imprisonment and constant government surveillance and oversight and hostility. And yet the annual growth rate of the church in China is something like 10%. They can't, the communist government can't stop it. They can't stop the gospel. And again, but people, people who are in in a place like China, like they're really in, right? There's no lukewarmth here. There's no like halfway fence-sitting thing. Like if you're in, you're in. It's incredible. I'm not saying that the church in China is perfect or that it's the ideal church, but when we look at what happens when you submit to the word of God as his living authoritative word for our lives today, and you see real growth and deep discipleship and joyful mission, and you compare it with what happens when you stand in authority over the scriptures and the spiritual decay and death that takes place there, it should tell you something. It should tell you something about where to get life. And again, going back to Acts 17, that's what we see. That the Jews in Berea eagerly, eagerly received the good news. They eagerly examined the scriptures. There was a zeal. There's a passion. There's a joy there. As they took what Paul said to the scriptures and they saw that it fit, that it was true, that it was good. And so their hearts were soft, right? That's what happens when, when we are submitted to God's word is that our hearts are soft, We were talking about soft hearts. There was was a a fertility there, right? Like the the hearts were, the the, the ground was prepared. And when the word came, it grew and it produced fruit. And so my exhortation to us today is that we would follow their example. That like the Bereans, we would eagerly examine the scriptures day by by day by day, that we would allow the scriptures to form us and shape our identity and our purpose and our view of the world, rather than Twitter and TikTok and the news and all of that stuff, that we would allow the scriptures to do that work that we would thirst for the word of God, that we would devour it, that we would be involved in in Bible study groups, just seeking to grow. And and again, not just to learn facts about the Bible or know theology, but but to be formed by it for our day today, to submit to the, the authority of the word in faith and conduct today. See, I've seen firsthand what happens when you make that shift. When I was a young adult in my early 20s, I was, I w- I was one of those uh, liberal, progressive Christians. At least I was really heading that way, who, um, who downplayed the role of the Bible. And so my preaching was, it lacked power. I've told you about my first sermon. It was mostly an exposition of Rocky III. Very little to do with the scriptures. <laughs> it's mostly a movie review. of a movie that, was, that came out 20 years earlier. Anyways... I, my, my preaching lacked power, lacked any kind of conviction, and then uh, the, the pastor of the church, he had been mentored by Daryl Johnson, and he always told me, Daryl Johnson, you know, John, Daryl Johnson says, trust the text, just trust the text, and I decided I, I would try that, and I started preaching, just, okay, I'm just going to preach the Bible and see what happens, and we had a young adult Bible study at that church. And uh, we just started going through the book of Romans piece by piece. And no, no bells or whistles. Just let, let's just read the book of Romans and, and dig into it. And that group grew, not just in numbers, but in depth, in zeal, in passion. Young adults were formed in that. A few years later, I was at another church and again leading a young adult Bible study. And I, there were these young adults who had kind of been like, I would say, battling against some of the things that the, scripture, the scriptures say. They, they, were, they, were, they had been formed by the world. And as we spent this time in the scriptures, and Carolyn will remember this, it was in our living room, we would just see these young adults come under conviction through the word of God. And uh, there was there was weeping and there were tears, but it was this this submission to God's word and their relationship with God just took on a whole new it was this whole new thing that God did. There was renewal in their lives through that. This is what happens when we come under the word of God: renewal, spiritual life. Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Again, may you come under the word of God. Allow it to penetrate your heart, shape you and form you and conform you to God's character and you will experience life. Life in Him. Well, let's pray and let's let's worship, and maybe just for a few moments here in the silence. Maybe you are somebody who has tried to do this Christian life thing without without the Scriptures, without the Word of God. And maybe you know that you have been allowing yourself to be formed extensively by the world instead of the word. So in a few, just these few moments of silence, I invite you to, um, if, if the Lord has spoken to you, led you this morning, just turn to him. Repent. Turn to him. Invite his word to have authority in your life. God, we thank you for your word, your living word, your word that testifies to Jesus, to all that Jesus has done for us, his death, his resurrection, the outpouring of the spirit. We thank you for your word that is our foundation and our rock that allows us to discern truth. Thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself known to us. And I thank you, Lord, that when we humble ourselves and come under the authority of your word, that you bring life to us. You raise us up. Lord, you make us who we were created to be. So we praise you, we thank you, and we ask, Lord, for a new move, a a new thirst for your word. A new desire, Lord, to devour your word, to be together with other Christians and Bible study groups and community groups, discipleship groups that are digging into your word. And I pray that you would shape us and form us as a church, not just as individuals, but as a church. Lord, that your word would go out from us to our community, to the nations, and that there would be transformation and revival. Thanks for joining us at The Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.